As uh, Jordan said, uh, four of us are planning to leave for Ukraine on Thursday. Um, a lot of stuff that they have. Uh, our schedule is crazy. I have uh, Dr. Gord Giesbrecht, who's actually doing video up top, uh, from the University of Manitoba will be speaking, uh, Sharon will be speaking, Rick Weeb from here will be speaking, myself as well. And uh, we plan originally to visit the churches and to encourage the church. Uh, there's a church we help plant in Rivna. There's an orphanage that we have uh, supplied mattresses and bedding and pillows, if you remember. We've showed videos of that in the past. Uh, we plan to go there. Um, there's also a hope that we'll go to the jail. We're not sure right now. Um, there's, uh, they're going under the COVID lockdowns, much like what we have. You have to be double vaccinated to go uh, to certain places. And so that's, uh, their vaccine rate is not very high. And uh, so part of it also is to encourage people in that area. Um, and uh, the four of us will also be lecturing on a variety of topics at the local university. And so we invite you just to pray for us. Um, pray for protection. I think pray for health, obviously, is one of the most important things. And as you can tell, there was luggage or hockey bags in the, uh, in the atrium. We wanted to take a hockey team last year, and COVID showed up and shut everything down. So I, we got all this donated hockey equipment. I still have people asking. I got more stuff, more stuff. And I'm just going, just hang on, because our plan, and I hope to get this ironed out when I'm out there this uh, next week, is possibly to take our hockey team in March and uh, to go and to... Uh, encourage the local church, but also to make relationships and build relationships through sport. Um, but we have four bags that we're going to be taking along with our regular luggage, and as you can see, they're heavy, they're extra, they cost more money, and uh, if you'd like just to donate and help make a difference and donate towards the cost of the freight, we'd really appreciate that. All you got to do is through your giving, Mark Ukraine, and that will help us a lot. And... Um, we're also just looking for extra hockey sticks. So if you have, and I'm not talking about the shinny hockey sticks that are toothpicks, all right? Some of you know what I'm referring. But if you have good used hockey sticks that are just sitting in your garage, you want to get rid of them, if you can bring them here before Wednesday, that will be ideal because we've got a big stick bag filled with goalie sticks and other sticks. So the, primarily what we're taking is goalie equipment um, because that's the most expensive stuff for them to get. And we give it to the local, the church gives it to the local community and it helps these kids who otherwise would never be able to play and, and do things like that. So thank you. So today, oh yeah, and you can follow me on social media. If you do follow me and you see that I blitz you on pictures and you uh, unfollow me, I will not be offended, but it will be the way to bring you in and on the trip with me. So we're going to go through some in-depth teaching right off the start, and I want to end in a practical note, but first... I ask this question, where do you find your identity? Where do you find your value? Because typically people are finding their identity and value in what they do, right? We identify ourselves by our perfection. Jordan was partly right when he called me Dr. Jerry. It's actually Reverend Doctor. So my doctorate is a little bit different, but that's how I identify. Reverend Doctor. I'm a pastor. That's what I do. Um... But we're something. Whether we're a teacher, whether we're lawyers, a doctor, a chef, a retail manager, it doesn't matter. But do you ever struggle with an identity crisis? And an identity crisis is a developmental event that involves a person questioning their sense of self or our sense of place in the world. And I sometimes wonder if Christians go through an identity crisis. And sometimes we really don't know who we are or who we belong to, and what's expected of us as Christians. And there's no secret that through our culture, through TV, through newspapers, through social media, that the culture thinks that we're freaks, that we're fanatics, and that we're frauds. They think that most Christians are extremists, that they're people trying to get attention as Bible-carrying renegades. They look at us as stopping the advancement of people's rights or as haters of certain groups. They believe the church is a social club that gathers to show off their new clothes, hairstyles, and metal in other people's business. Many people actually believe the only difference between them and Christians is that they meet in bars and clubs and Christians meet in a building called a church. 
And unless we can actually show them a difference, they don't want to hear what we have to say. Culture sees us as faking and pretending and sometimes trying to be something that we're not. Even 2 Timothy addresses this in the New Testament where he writes, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, many have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. The world doesn't care if you go to church. Just don't bring it home, just don't bring it to work, and just don't make it public. The world also sees us as hypocrites. Webster's definition is a person who puts on a false appearance or the virtue of religion. I prefer the Reader Digest version. Reader Digest suggests a hypocrite is somebody who complains that there's too much profanity, sex, and violence on their DVD player. Yeah, self-inflicted within the control to change, right? What does culture see when it looks at the Christian? Culture sees Christians believing in prayer but never praying. They see us saying that we believe tithing money to the church is right, but we actually never give God and what he, to God and what he expects from us. They see us say the Bible's God's word, but we really never read it on our own. They see us with a whole lot of junk in our trunks. And it was no different back in Peter's day when he wrote this letter to the church that we've been looking at, the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament. You remember last week? Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, of all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Remember, he's talking to Christians. Get rid of this stuff. And like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation. And now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. You know, I think we can all agree that Christians struggle in their spiritual walk at times. In, in the portion of First Peter that we've been studying, the apostle has been writing to, to tell his believing brothers and sisters uh, some things that they needed to know about their daily Christian walk. And it was important for them to know these things because they were a group of people who were suffering persecution and hardship. Why? Because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And they needed to be encouraged by the resources that was theirs in Jesus. In today's passage, Peter presents a very important concept. It's actually a concept that has to do with the very foundation of the Christian life. As a matter of fact, we sang about it this morning. And not only for those of us as individual believers, but also for us as a community of believers who are joined together in the name of Jesus, under his banner, under his name. And to present this concept, Peter begins to speak the language of an architect, of a builder, and he makes use of the idea of a cornerstone. So Peter writes to his believing friends about Jesus. And when we look at the Bible, we see that the Bible uses many figures of speech that are used to describe Jesus. He's the head of the body, right? The church. He is the vine. We are the branches. He is the shepherd who guides the sheep. Bah. He is the light of the world. He is the bread of life of which we eat. He is the water of life by which we drink. And so here in our text now, Peter gives us another one. And so pick it up in, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 4, and it says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So now, think for a moment about that phrase, living stone. You know, there's an oxymoron right there for you. And a stone can be described in many ways. We can describe it by its size. We can describe it by its shape, by its color. But to describe a stone as living is actually very unusual. And it doesn't seem like those two words actually would go together. As a matter of fact, you would have to say that if there was such thing as a living stone, that's truly unique. And we also notice that Peter refers to the stone, not as an it, but as a him. He's speaking of Jesus. But usually when we attribute this, uh, a, a description to somebody like they're stone-like, you know, uh, the, the inference is that they're not living. You know, we say they're dead as stone, right? They, 
But here, Jesus is presented to us as a living stone. This is what the passage is saying. So what does it mean? And first, I think what is, uh, we have to think of what a stone is. It's something that's solid. It's something that's unmovable. It's something that is strong. It is reliable. It's something that doesn't change. And so Peter would know a thing or two about that because Peter's name means rock. Jesus once told Peter that on his profession of faith, what he said to Jesus uh, was that he looked at Jesus and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies to him and says, you are Peter and on this rock... That is, on the rock-solid confession, Jesus says, I will build my church. And we read that in Matthew chapter 16. But the word that Peter uses in our passage this morning is a different word than, uh, it's a different word that is used to describe a rock. It's a solid stone that has been worked on, that has been prepared, and that has been beautified for a very special purpose. And that's what Jesus is. This is what he's communicating to us. He is God's appointed. He he is a specially prepared stone. He will not change with the times. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is reliable. He is that foundation. This is what Peter is communicating. And here's the picture. Jesus is the living stone who was once dead but is now alive. And because he's the resurrected Messiah, right, because These are Christians, these are new Christians. He is truly the living stone. However, what does Peter continue to write? He's rejected by people. And it didn't matter that Jesus had been rejected by people. That didn't alter the truth that he was valuable and that he was chosen by God and that uh, he was valuable to God. And because he is living and unchanging, He is able to impart eternal life to others. He's able to transform people. He's able to transform the lives of others who are built upon him. And in the same way, Peter writes and he calls his audience living stones. And so they're similar in circumstances to Jesus. And Peter's making this correlation. They're they're also rejected people, right? They're being persecuted. They're living in exile in Asia Minor, which is basically Turkey, that area. They had come to chosen to build their lives on Jesus. They had become Christians now. And now what we find historically is that they're suffering horrible persecution for that. And unbelieving people hated the fact that these individuals chose Jesus and they were hated for the fact that they were building their lives on him. And some of these believers may have wondered if they had made the wrong choice. Wouldn't you? I make a decision and now I'm paying a penalty for it? Peter wanted to write to assure them that they hadn't chosen wrongly. That they allowed God to gather them together to Christ and to be built together as a a holy temple for his use. And that they would never, not by any means, be disappointed in the end. And even though they had been rejected by various authorities, they still were chosen by God. Rejected by people, but still valuable and precious to God. And I think we can take hope in the knowledge that we may be rejected by people in all facts and areas. But we're still chosen by God. Even though people may reject us because of our lifestyle as Christians or who we declare our allegiance to, doesn't mean we're not valuable. Doesn't mean that we don't have an identity. Our identity and our value is found in God as individuals and as believers. As living stones, as Peter says, we're modeling the life of Jesus and God is using us. You are precious, you are valuable, and you are chosen. Who needs to hear those words today? You are precious, you are valuable, and you are chosen. And we're being built, as Peter writes in our passage, into a spiritual house. And this is who we are. This is where we find our great value. This is where we find our identity. It's not a finished house. But rather, it's 
under construction. In other words, we are all under construction. Remember what Paul said to the Ephesians, you are a masterpiece. In other words, you are a piece of work created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he has planned for you in advance. Do you see the importance of who you are in the light of God? You are important. Now, progress doesn't mean that you're not going to have setbacks along the way, right? Just like in any construction projects or home renovations, you make a mistake along the way. What do you do? You cut the board wrong. What happens? You blame somebody else, even though you did the measurements. You put the light switch in the wrong place. Of course, if you had a real person with an electrician who got it done, you wouldn't be having this problem. Or maybe you hang the door wrong, right? Improperly. And now it doesn't shut. So instead of taking it down, what do you do? You get a planer and you just you fix it, right? In a construction project, once you notice that you've made a mistake, you correct it and you get it done right. And as Christians along the way, listen, we're going to make some mistakes. We actually call those mistakes sin, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, right? And our job is to come before Christ and correct them when you notice them. And sometimes it takes people in our circle, other believers who will maybe point it out and allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, to guide us, to direct us. And so if you take a look at a construction project, even with mistakes that we've made along the way, there, there is progress at the end. And at the end of the week, hopefully you're going to be able to look and say, look what I did this far. Okay, we're, we're, we're making progress. Now the question we have to ask ourselves on a weekly basis as believers is even with the mistakes that I've made along the way, because we do, right? We lose our temper, we say things, we do things. Have I made any progress in my Christian life? And the answer ought to be yes. But it's uncomfortable progressing and never finishing. In other words, we never arrive. Completion is at the other end of this life. It's this process. And being with the people of God and having our identity in Jesus is where our great value lies. We are a spiritual house of God. This is what we see here. This is who we are. We're not just plumbers, teachers, pilots, customer service reps. We are living stones. We are Christians. That is who we are. That is where our value is found. Not in our achievements, not in our occupations. It's who God made us to be and who we are under Jesus. And the pictures amplify that we are also this holy priesthood. This, this is what Peter calls us, a holy priesthood. Is, and, and we offer these things called spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus. When you look at the Bible and we see that the priests served at the pleasure of God in the Old Testament, that's what he did in the temple and in the tabernacle. But the, the, the sacrifices that we offer aren't the offerings of the Old Testament priesthood. We don't do that anymore. Those animal sacrifices were, was a picture of what Jesus had already fulfilled with us, for us. Our sacrifices are different. They're called the sacrifices of praise and thanks to God. It's totally different. It's doing good. It's sharing an acts of service. It's making a difference both to one another and to the others around us who are in need. We are people as believers set apart by God for God's use and God's service. This is who Christians are. We, we have to be different, just as the priests were sort of set apart from the rest of the people, but the beautiful picture is that all of us are priests. And the priests were called to serve. So what does that mean now as Peter is writing to the church? Everyone who comes to the living stone is, is a priest. Everyone who comes to Jesus, the living stone, is to serve. And this means that we have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. Each of us do that personally. When we serve God, when we serve each other, he's there. In Psalm 51, I think David actually gives us a hint of what the sacrifices that God is looking for. He says this, You don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit and a contrite heart you, God, will not despise. He speaks of a spiritual sacrifice a broken spirit. This is, this is coming to God. Remember we talked about the fear of God and then how that fear is not, ah, but rather it's a healthy, a reverent fear. It's coming in with a humility and recognizing who we are in front of God, but remembering that we are valuable. 
Then you look in the book of Hebrews chapter 13, through Jesus, therefore, let us continue to offer to God a what? Sacrifice of praise. The fruit of our lips that openly profess his name. Do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. When we do good, it's a sacrifice, right? Sometimes it takes us effort to say things kindly. That's a sacrifice. But when we do good as Christians, that's the way that we, we, we please God. And so in the spiritual sacrifices that we offer to God are, are coming before him, right? Broken, with a broken heart, with a humble heart, offering our praises to him and making a positive difference in the world around us. This image is what Peter was talking about earlier on a call to holiness when he says to us, be holy. This is our call to holiness. This is a part of what it means to be holy in chapter 1. Peter continues in our passage. He says, For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, this stone the builders rejected has become a cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. Well, these are pretty heavy words. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Now, what Peter does here is he begins to use three quotations from the Old Testament. And he does that to further identify who we are as people of God. Peter quotes Isaiah 28, verse 16, and it applies to this messianic stone reference to Jesus. And the image is actually very vivid if you take the time to study it and, and when Peter makes this reference from Isaiah. And so God placed Jesus as the chosen and valuable cornerstone. And again, that cornerstone in those days was everything, you know, everything when the building was a structure in those days, it started with that cornerstone. It needed to be straight. It needed to be square so that the rest of the building would be built straight. And because a building, if it leans, it's not going to last very long. And this is the idea that Peter is trying to give to his readers. This is the idea that he's giving to us. That Jesus is that perfect cornerstone upon which the spiritual house of God is built. We are the spiritual stones in this house. And so we can't be built just anywhere on this structure. We must be measured against the living stone to ensure that we are in line with it. And as we are built on this cornerstone, we keep our lives connected to him. He is the foundation, and we are to be building our lives directly upon Jesus. That's why we encourage. Look, we need to know what Jesus said. We need to know what Jesus practiced. Let's get into the Word. Let's read it. Let's live it out, and let's make a difference in our world. And we need to understand that Jesus is never out of alignment. He is the perfect, precious cornerstone chosen by God. We are the ones who get out of alignment. And we have to constantly measure ourselves against Jesus as our standard. And so when we build our lives as a profession of faith and I become a Christian, I begin to build my life on Jesus. And as I do that, there are times where we will be rejected by people. But when we are built on Jesus, we're not rejected by God. And so our trials and our hardships are, are not a symbol of God's rejection, but our identity is not found in the opinion of others either. Our value is being what Peter calls us, living stones built into a spiritual house, aligned with Jesus, who is what? Our foundation, our cornerstone. Peter's going to quote two other scriptures to show what will become of those who choose not to believe, interesting enough. In verse 7, Peter quotes from Psalms 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this relates to the problem of those who thought they were doing God's will. These people thought that they were the people of God, that they were building their lives to be part of God's family, part of God's kingdom. They were building the way to God, so to speak, if I could put it that way. But they left out the most important piece. They left out the cornerstone. And in an effort to come to God, they, they rejected the most important stone, which is Jesus. And you can't get to God without Jesus. Read the scriptures. You can't have a relationship with God and draw near to God without Jesus. These people were building their lives to God, but they didn't have the proper foundation. They didn't recognize Jesus as the chosen cornerstone by God. 
And Peter applied this point to the Jewish leaders who were attempting to find their own righteousness to God. But they rejected Jesus. And so we go into the book of Acts and we see where Peter is standing before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, Acts chapter 4, and this is what it says. And, and, and Peter says, this Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you. And now he's talking to the, the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. It was rejected by you, the builders. In other words, you're trying to build something, but you're leaving out the most important part, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men which we might be saved. He's talking about Jesus. And there's something very interesting about this text. That even though we could reject Jesus as the cornerstone of our lives, the fact of the matter is he's still the cornerstone. And regardless of what you believe, Jesus is still the cornerstone that God has set in place. Did you hear that? So you can build your life however you'd like. But you won't find salvation with God except for a life that's built on Jesus. You can go your own way. You can. You, you're not going to find the way to God. The kingdom of God is built on Jesus. And we have to be aligned ourselves to Jesus if we are going to be these living stones in the spiritual house. And the second quotation, which is, comes from Isaiah 8.14, a stone that causes man to stumble and a rock that trips them up. Really weird stuff sometimes when we read the scriptures. But this is a clear lesson in, in the passage for unbelievers, or rather, it's a clear warning. Because remember, the, the, the letters that Peter is sharing, that he's writing, they're gonna be, there's going to be people when it's read, there's going to be believers listening and also some unbelievers. And this second section, verses 7 and 8, stands as a warning to those who are not going to receive Jesus on his terms. There are, not many there are not many people, religious or non-religious, who would regard themselves as enemies of Jesus. Nevertheless, if Jesus is not their cornerstone, if he's not their capstone, the only other option then for him to be is their stumbling stone. And many of us, sometimes we stumble over Jesus. And there are those who believe that Jesus would be a very special religious leader, maybe even the most godlike man that ever lived. There are those who regard him as a great model of love or justice. They would not agree that they are rejecting Jesus when they say that. But they just can't accept the accounts of Jesus that makes him Messiah, that makes him the Savior of the world. They can't accept the accounts that would make him God that we read throughout Scripture. And what Peter is saying is it's not an option. He's the cornerstone upon which our faith in God must rest. We must accept that we are no temple without him. He is the precious stone chosen by God, and we will rise up to God on him and through him, or we will fall from God tripping over him. He's the cornerstone, the foundation, or he's a stumbling block. And with Jesus, the line is drawn in the ground. So the question I ask is, do you love God? Do you, do you want to know God? Then, then, when, then who do you say Jesus is? That becomes the pivotal question. You know, can you have honest doubt? Yes. But if it is honest, you will make every effort to learn, and you will recognize that your obstacle is not purely intellectual, but rather that you fear the humbling of yourself that is required. And I think that's where many of us stumble, is coming to God humbly. In our day when a building has a cornerstone, now it's primarily symbolic. It's a ceremonial stone, often has an inscription bearing a plaque that tells us something very informative of the building. You'll notice we don't have one here. Usually a cornerstone has no real importance to the building beyond that, but in ancient times, that cornerstone was the most important stone in the building. And when the builders began to lay their bricks, began to lay their foundation, they'd have to carefully select one large stone. And that was carefully worked on. It was carefully prepared. And it would hold a strategic place in the construction of the entire foundation. 
All the other stones are now set up in reference to that one. It would be the stone that joined the beginning walls into a solid corner. It would be that stone that would determine the position and the structure and the stability of the whole building. The very thing that a wise builder would do would what? Select, prepare, and place that cornerstone. That's where his energy went. And that becomes a great spiritual lesson for us because it makes us ask, what is the cornerstone of my life? What is your life built upon? What is the beginning point upon which my whole life is constructed? Many people choose such things as science and human reasoning as a beginning point. Others look to spirituality or religion or the teachings of various human philosophies. Some seek to build their lives on such noble things like it's humanitarian service to others or the pursuit of social justice. Others seek to build their lives on things like materialism or success or a reputation or even power over other people. Some seek to build their lives on good health. That's all that matters is good health. But some build their whole lives on the pursuit of pleasure as well. And very few people actually stop to think, to consider what they have used as a cornerstone. What's the cornerstone of my life? What is it that I've built my life on? And many just keep building without any thought of the foundation. And sadly, many find that what they built their life on has disappointed them in the end. And they had not wisely selected the right beginning point, the right cornerstone. And what happens is we get ourselves in messes because we're choosing to do things our own way. And we're not aligning ourselves to Jesus, who's our cornerstone. We think that we know what's best for ourselves. And so we think we can live our lives the way that we want, claiming to be followers of God, but we're actually deceiving ourselves. A life not aligned to to Jesus eventually brings disaster. And our problem, even as Christians, is not that we can't make sense of the gospel or God's word. Our problem is that we don't want to. We, we don't want to. And we have to give up so much, but I think that that's the irony. In our fear to lose what we think belongs to us, we stumble and lose everything anyway. Jesus said it in Mark chapter 8. He says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And so again, even Jesus' own words brings us to this idea that uh, only through obedience to him, for believing on him in his terms, that we will know what life's all about. So let me ask you, if I was to ask you to dream up your perfect church, now I'm talking to believers here, so if you're you're not a believer, just, just work with me here. Dream up your perfect church, what would it look like? Would it be focused in the city? Would it be focused in the country? Would it be environmentally sensitive building with a great, unique urban design? Would it include a coffee shop? A gym? Event space for the community? Would would the church itself be active in justice, in mercy, in outreach? Would it hold on to the best of historical theological traditions while learning from the best of other traditions as well? Would it be gospel-centered, spirit-led, mission-minded? Would this church, your dream church, would it plant other dream churches and engage its members in active service within the community? Would it offer maybe engaging courses on a variety of topics for the community for their betterment Would this church own other property, like several homes or apartments in the community, so that they could rent them out as a way of building relationships with the international community, helping those maybe who can't afford a place to live? Sounds great, right? Like I think if we actually sat down, that we can all dream of the perfect church in our minds. And we all would have ideas of what that would look like and and how it would embody our ideals and our values. Here's a kicker. What we think we want from a church is almost never what we need. However challenging it may be to embrace, God's idea of a church is far greater than any dream that we could come up with. And it's not about finding a church that fits perfectly fits my theological architecture or political preferences. It's about becoming like living stones 
that are being built upon a spiritual house, focused on and held together by who? By Jesus, the cornerstone. You know, we're accused of being the customer in almost every relationship. We can shop around and find almost uh, whatever we like in any category, right? And it's the same, to bring that same attitude to the church. And yet God's idea for the church is much better than anything we could come up with. Instead of driving 20 miles away to attend a a church that fits my needs, what if we committed to the nearest non-heretical Bible-believing church where we could grow and serve in your community? Are you trying to preach people out of your church? What? But what if, where Jesus is the hero? Commitment, even amidst discomfort, Faithfulness admits disappointment. This is what the people of God have always been about. And normally when somebody's trying to get you to join or become a member of something like at a gym or a Costco, you know, whatever, you get the list of benefits, right? I'm going to do the opposite today. Can I do that? I'm going to tell you that joining a church, becoming a part of a church, becoming part of the Living Stones, it's actually very uncomfortable. It's sacrificial. And it's costly. But I'm also going to tell you that being a part of a community like that is also awesome. Not because it's easy. Because it's both what God designed and what we need. In other words, we need each other. And Peter is one of Jesus' closest friends. Writing to this church. He's writing to Christians who haven't always been Christians. They were mostly Gentiles, so... You know, not familiar with some of the Jewish references, but they also worshipped idols. And now they're followers of Jesus Christ. Right around the time where the Christians are being persecuted. And I think we need to pay a lot more attention to this letter than we do because we're in a very similar position today. Now hear me out. We're in a church, we're a church full of people who haven't always followed Jesus. We're trying to figure out what it means to follow him in a culture that is actually becoming more increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. How do you live for Jesus when it goes against the current culture? And that's what Peter writes about, and that's what we can learn a lot from. You know, he doesn't address his readers as a collection of individuals, which is actually how we tend to think, right? Instead, what he's doing is he's using images that amaze me when I think about them. And it doesn't mean much to say that we're God's temple. Temple is one of those words that's lost its meaning, I think. No longer carries the weight that it used to. In the Bible, the temple was full of meaning. When Adam and Eve sinned, God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden. There was no way that sinful humans could live in God's presence. God is so holy that he can't live in the presence of sin. But as you read the Bible, you discover that God begins to choose still to live with his people. First we read it was in a thing called a tabernacle that moved around with the children of Israel. Then it became a more permanent structure. It was called the temple. And the temple is where God, a holy God, lives with imperfect people. And it's only made possible by sacrifices which somehow dealt with the problem of our sin. And the temple, again, God lives with his people. It's where God showed his glory. It's where God's people came from afar to worship. And it's where he deals with their sin. And Peter writes that the temple is no longer where God lives. It's changed. And Peter speaks of the church, the ordinary followers of Jesus who are bound together, tied together with Jesus as the new place where God lives with his people. And Peter mixes the metaphors, actually. You know, we're not just stones in the temple, but we're priests. He calls us priests as well, remember? We're priests in the temple doing God's work. And today you can visit Jerusalem, you'll find a mosque where the temple used to stand. It's gone. That's no accident that that happened. God is building a new temple now. That new temple, that cornerstone is Jesus. 
And it will never be removed. It will never be destroyed. Jesus is the cornerstone because he stands at the center of history. He gave his life for us. He made it possible for us to be right with God. And so everything can and must be built around him and what he's done for us. And now God is building his church. How is he doing that? He uses you and me. We are living stones. Living stones in this new temple where God lives and shows his glory. The church is where God shows his glory to the world. That's what the church should be about. I'll say it. We can't go to Ukraine without you. For all of you who have poured so much time, effort, money, you are making a difference globally, whether it's what we're doing in Ukraine, whether it's what we're doing in Brazil, whether it's what we're doing in Indonesia. It's you. You are living stones, living it out. You are part of that priesthood. You are making a difference in this world. And it's the church where God shows his glory. And I think it's a big deal. I think this is a huge deal. I think this is the deal where our lives are interlocked together as a group of believers. And as we come together, God inhabits us. And we can't expect this if we're isolated. We can't expect this if we're alone. But God inhabits us collectively. His glory, his presence show up when we're being built together. We together are the very heart and center of God's activity in the world. We are God's building. And then there's what we do. We're that priesthood. And Peter's not talking about what just happens on Sunday. He's talking about our lives together as a church. Everything that we do as a church, as we gather on Sundays, as we pray together in our life groups, as we go and we begin to reach out to the community or the world, is about one thing. It's all about one thing. It's about getting the good news of Jesus out. And where we are, we are his ambassadors. Where we are is where God lives. Where we are, God shows his glory when we're obedient and listening to him. And we have a very clear job description to bring glory to Jesus. That's what the church should be all about. It's about Jesus. I have an inside voice that's just going off this morning. We as Christians have a responsibility to point the world around us to Jesus and nothing else and be his hands, his feet, and his love. And so what does this look like for our church here at Soul Sanctuary? I come back to it again. When we did our series on This Is Church, we need to gather together. And I have to say this. I'm horribly guilty, and maybe you are too, of thinking individualistically. I think sometimes we tend to think of our relationship with God in terms of me. It's all about me. And we miss how the Bible hardly ever talks about that aspect. It's always talking about God and his people. You ever realize that? Last week we talked about how the horizontal effects, the malice, the envy, the deceit, the slander, all those things. What does Peter write to the people? Get rid of them. Why? Because it affects our vertical. And God calls for believers to gather locally. He calls us to administer ordinances. Last week we did the Lord's Supper together, the Eucharist. Why? God calls us together to fulfill the one another commands, love one another, you know, encourage one another, pray for one another, hold another accountable. God calls us together to even exercise church just discipline. But just look at our passage. A dwelling place is not one solitary stone. Each stone retains its identity which is really critical. It's, it's joined to others, but it's because that there's something bigger than itself. It's only together, it's only together that we achieve the structural purpose of becoming the church. We need to be together, we need to be unified, we need to make a difference in our culture and where God has placed us. And our culture is the city of Winnipeg, province of Manitoba, Canada, and I do believe the rest of the world. Second, some things only happen by being together. Being committed to each other. We can only do this. We can only do things when we, we are together. You can't, we can't do these things alone. I said we can't do Ukraine alone. 
Well, maybe you, you say you're really loving. Well, that's awesome. And somebody meets you. They show up and they meet you, and you hope that by loving them, you can show them that what it's like to follow Jesus. I get it. But the problem, that loving aspect could be just a part of your personality. Because remember, some people are cranky. Some people are loving, some people are cranky. You just happen to be maybe one of those loving people. But say that person, shows up and they encounter not just one person who's loving, but they show up and they encounter an entire community who's loving. A whole community. All of a sudden, that loving personality is not just a personality quirk for one individual. It is a mark. A mark of who we are built on. And all of a sudden, you have people with very different personalities, different makeups, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, all reoriented in radical new ways by what Jesus has done for them. God has called us to do a lot of things. And I say this, we can't do any of them by ourselves. You think about it. You can't encourage. You can't build up. You can't strengthen. You can't serve. You can't rebuke. You can't love others by yourself. You can't covenant to watch over or to be watched over by yourself. You can't experience the care and the protection of the, the, the elders of a church. Why? By yourself. You can't. You can't receive the assurance of faith that comes from the involvement of others in your life who see and recognize God's work in your life by yourself. We need each other. And finally, we have to remember our purpose together as a church. It's easy for us to approach church as a consumer. What if instead we focus not on what we want as a church, but what God wants? What if we came not with a focus on what we can get, but on who we are as a church and what God has called us to do? That's what it means to be the church. To turn away from isolation and even wish lists of what we want to be in life. It means joining up with others, which is messy, which is frustrating, because it's people, hello, and nothing in common except Jesus. It means that we become a part of the church, an ordinary group of Christians who band together to be God's temple and to do God's work. And so here's my question. Are you willing to lay aside your dream church, your consumer fantasies, and accept the hard-to-stomach truths and awkward requirements of locking arms with weird people in common in the pursuit of Jesus? Are you willing to relinquish your freedom to do whatever you want to do? Are you willing to embrace persecution when it comes? Count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's what Paul wrote. When you read about the early church, you discover a community of believers that had everything in common. Peter is painting a picture for us. It powerfully displays to us what can be in the church. It's a picture of stability. It's a picture of growth. It's an activity in a unified church. Unity and cooperation will always accomplish more than criticism and isolation. And we have to remember that the church is not a physical building, a civic or religious group. The church is the called out saints, and in this place, sinners, living stones committed to Jesus and each other. And the lesson needs to be obvious to all of us, that we need to be a community, that we need to be intentional about gathering together for worship. We need to be intentional about building each other up in the word. We are members of our body. We are living stones of a spiritual house. We are connected. It's the Holy Spirit who dwells in each of us, dwells among us, and connects us together. And Peter's lesson to the people is the same to us. We as believers live out physically what is true of us spiritually. We need to love each other. And what does that look like in today's day and age? We need to encourage each other in the faith. We need to hold one another accountable in our Christian walk. We need to minister together and we need to pray together. We need to confess our sins to one another. And these things don't happen uh, according to how we may feel at the time, but as much as possible and as with as many as possible. So who's on board? I finish with a passage from Paul. Why don't you stand with me?
Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We're brought together, and God begins to grow us together. He begins to use us, and he's the center point. He's the center point. Honey, can you throw me my phone? Or you can give it to me. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we can just take a time, we can come together. We can see friends, we can see family. We can experience your presence, Lord, whether it's through music, whether it's through uh, the worship, whether it's through prayer. God, even over a cup of coffee and just talking. I just pray that your hand would be upon us, that you would guide us, that you would direct us, that we would be aware of whom and what is the center of our life, what our life is built upon. May it be you. May Jesus be the cornerstone, and we go from there. Father, I pray for a uniting amongst us as a church people, as a body, as a community of soul sanctuary. I thank you for those who dedicate, who serve, who go far and above just to make a difference in the world and put you first. And may we continue to do just that, Lord. Inspire us, guide us, teach us, and may we make an impact for Jesus in this world together. Now, in ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. Here's your blessing before you go. If you have the opportunity and, and you're able-bodied and have some time and you can help us stack chairs, we'd really appreciate it. Eight high. So, Soul Sanctuary, may the God of power give you the boldness of his spirit to transform you. And may the gentleness of his spirit lead you. And may the gifts of his spirit equip you to serve and worship now and always. May you be blessed. We'll see you next week. Now go and live the church.